Hi, I'm Anna Rutschman. I'm an assistant professor at the law school at St. Louis University, and I work for the Center for Health Law Studies. I've been thinking about vaccination quite a lot for the past few years, um, and now I'm here to talk about it on the Big Mouth Pharmacist podcast. My biggest pet peeve, this is more than a pet peeve, it, it literally breaks my heart that we have the technological means to prevent certain diseases and to prevent suffering and death, and sometimes for a host of reasons that I guess we're going to be taking apart during this episode, we just failed to do so collectively, and that it's way more than a pet peeve, it does break my heart. Welcome to the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. I'm Neil. I'm the Big Mouth Pharmacist. I'm a pretty sarcastic, slightly unprofessional healthcare professional, a holistic pharmacist here to talk about everything wellness, weed, and Woodstock. We broadcast from the most famous small town in America, where I hold court as the town's family pharmacist who tries to get people off their medicines and onto a wellness program free of the BS and misinformation of the natural products industry. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Neil Smoller, holistic pharmacist, big mouth, and owner of Woodstock Vitamins. Today on the podcast, Anna Santos Rushman. She's an assistant professor of law at St. Louis University School of Law. And I know what you're going to say. What's with your fascination with lawyers, Neil? Well, they're expensive, and this is the cheapest way for me to talk to them, quite simply put, right? It's not really the truth, of course. Anna has a lot to add to the conversation. Uh, She teaches courses in health law, intellectual property, and most importantly to me, regulation and life sciences. So she researches and writes on topics related to emerging health technologies with a particular focus on vaccines. So her interest in vaccines has expanded from law to misinformation, and she's written on the subject and speaks regularly on it all across the country. So check out the show notes at woodstockvitamins.com slash podcast for her full bio and links to her published works because they're quite fascinating. I asked Anna on as a follow-up to last week's episode where we were discussing flu shot myths. So this is a little one-two punch to the misinformation campaigns out there around vaccines. My opinion, again, to reinforce it is that adults can opt out of vaccines if they so choose because they're adults, but it shouldn't be based on any of the lies or fears that are stoked out there on the internet and social media. So we speak about all this today and how even the opt-out because you're an adult mentality is a risky move too. So sit back and relax, because today's your daily vaccine against vaccine myths. And you know what? It's not going to hurt a bit. So Anna, on my podcast last week, I talked about flu vaccine myths. So the timing is perfect here. Um, Mm -hmm. I believe that there are only a few good reasons why people should not get a flu shot at least. And they're simply, you know, you're an adult and you don't want to, or you're an allergic. I don't think any of the other reasons are justifiable. And I think most of it's misinformation. In fact, the only one I really can empathize with is the fact that somebody could be like needle phobic, (laughs) Uh, but even then it's not even a good enough reason for me. So, so do you feel like, um, I'm on, I'm on point there or, you know, not to do a needle pun right at the top of the show. (laughs) Uh, well, Neil, um, you are a pharmacist. I'm a law professor. So as a law professor, my, um, default attitude when considering not just this issue, but a number of different things is that if there are people with technical or scientific expertise that talk about a subject. And so if there's scientific consensus, I listen to that consensus. Um, And the consensus surrounding um, the flu vaccine um, is that, you know, apart from specifically the first case um, you you mentioned, for some reason you cannot get 
uh, a vaccine. That's one story, right? And that um, seems to make sense. Um, we can talk about the second set of situations. So you actually can get the vaccine, but you choose not to in this particular context. It might, uh, it might make some sense when we talk about the flu vaccine. It might not make much sense um, if we're talking about other diseases. But my view is that if the medical consensus is that you should get the vaccine, then you should get the vaccine. The CDC says get the vaccine, so I do. Right. The, the idea then is that belief is brought into it in any sense of the word. You know, I even said, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a belief is an emotion tied to a thought or an idea. So, like, why are emotions running wild in something that you and I, as practitioners, would look at and say, well, the experts are saying, why are emotions being dragged into this? I think this is a very messy um, area. Um, and, you know, you were talking about needles. It doesn't help that to deliver this particular <laughs> type of drug, we need needles, right? Uh, but um, this has been controversial uh, for a really, really long time. So um, the courts in the U.S. have been dealing with this since the early 20th century. So the debate of, on whether, you know, can people be compelled to get their children um, vaccinated or them themselves get vaccinated? That debate has been going on at least conceptually for well over a hundred years now. And it, oh. it sh anything uh, on which there's a court ruling that has not changed for over a hundred years, you'd think it's settled. Um, mm -hmm. it, it might be settled law, but you know, uh, in other, every other aspect is anything but settled, right? Mm -hmm. So there's that. The debate has been there from early, early on, uh, but it has changed. It has changed. Um, I think it changed in the mid 20th century when we actually succeeded in, um, eliminating so many diseases here um, in, in, the US, in the U.S. And I don't think anybody really thought they would make a comeback, that we would be on the verge of losing uh, our status on, on diseases like measles. But that has changed recently. Um, the tone of the debate has um, changed. The, I think the inner underlying philosophical and political um, tone of the, of the debate has changed. Social media um, have uh, propelled uh, certain types of information into the stratosphere. So now they're available to many more people and um, minority views on uh, the safety and effectiveness of vaccines resonate wider, you know, than, than before. So, so much is happening. It's a very messy area. Very messy area. And I almost feel like with a lot of these denier communities, no matter what they are, there's, a, there's another emotion that comes about, which is pride. They're proudfully um, uh, dug into their camp of belief around something uh, in the face of the consensus, the expert consensus. Well, and, and I'm sure that in, in some cases, there are parents who think they're doing the best for their kids. I know that there are people who deeply believe that they're right, um, and what they don't actually perceive to be scientific consensus is therefore wrong. So I, they, I think there's many layers to it. Um, mm -hmm. I know that in, in some instances, um, the, the fight against vaccines is actually part of something much um, wider, broader than that. So, you know, I think that's perhaps what you're describing as, as pride. It's, you know, you, I, I, this is my stance and I'm going to stick um, to my own guns. But I think there's a, a lot of mixed emotions going into this. And that's what makes the, the debate so difficult. Um, because you, you want to be, you know, you want to be paying attention to people who 
you know, read different sources and end up believing that what they're doing is best for their, their children and it might be amenable to certain types of information, right? Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of the um, public health people out there saying we need more information, which we obviously do, but you need to target um, your constituencies very differently if they're objecting because, you know, they're proud of, you know, being countercurrents or because they really think that vaccines are dangerous. And as with many drugs, they are. That does not make them any less, um, you know, cost effective. But um, there's that. Yeah, I think that one of the points that we keep kind of saying here is the idea of consensus. And Mm -hmm. when I speak to people that are, I don't have any like real hardcore vaccine deniers that are in our circle, even though we're, you know, firmly entrenched in the health and wellness space. You mm-hmm. know, most people are pretty pro-science uh, in, in most of this. But um, I feel like the idea of consensus bothers them because there's an inherent trust, an uh, inherent lack of trust, I should say, in the system itself and the source of the consensus. Um, correct, correct. I mean, the word consensus um, and, and the ways we've embedded ideas of consensus into regulatory schemes um, and, and legal regimes has always been problematic. It's not just in this um, in this field. And, you know, if, if we um, look, you know, beyond the, the debate on vaccines and start thinking about what's happening in the field of environmental law, um, you know, there's a similar... Uh, there are several degrees of distrust, you know, uh, related to things that scientifically, again, have been consensual for um, a long time. Funny enough, uh, with everything going on uh, with regard to climate change and um, the Environmental Protection Agency, in in many ways, the literature on vaccines is much more consensual. I guess that, that there's much more quantitatively uh, saying the same thing for longer than with regard to climate change. And yet, um, even though we can talk about a scientific consensus in with regard to climate change, people still um, have widely different reactions um, to that consensus. So yes, it is um, the fact that we talk uh, from the vantage point of medical consensus is not something um, that's exempted from being perceived as aggressive because I don't want the state uh, or the federal government telling me uh, what to do. Why should I rely on the sources they rely on when there are alternatives? Um, and again, I don't think this is specific to vaccines, but because again, it's a, it's a messy field, it gets amplified. Yeah, no, I mean, this is exactly the the problem, the battle that we fight in the natural products industry is the idea that the medical community is either hiding or cannot profit on supplements. So therefore, I'm going to trust my alternative sources, as you're saying, which are low quality sources. And, and the thing is, is that I try to teach people to not view the sources the same. I think, you mm-hmm. know, when people will read an article, whether it's put out by the CDC, Mayo Clinic, or some mommy blogger, they'll actually hold it to equal value. They -hmm. haven't had the training to vet and understand bias and how everything is gray and not black and white and such. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a very, very difficult battle uh, to fight to teach people to say, okay, well, I understand that you're skeptical of this group because of the history of corruption in this country, sure. But how are you going to trust the guy that's like hawking supplements and hawking a protocol more than a group of lifelong uh, people that have dedicated the, themselves to researching and getting the best information out there, even though they're a part of a large organization? 
Mm -hmm. and, and let me just, um, if you don't mind, bring a few other um, areas into all this, because you talk about dietary supplements, we're talking about vaccines. Mm -hmm. All of this largely falls under the umbrella of FDA-regulated products, yeah. and the history of the FDA, which is to say the history of how we've regulated historically anything from food to drugs to medical devices in this country has not been very happy one. So we've not been proactive. The FDA, so the government has traditionally, except in maybe one or two instances, reacted to disaster, right? So the government, in that sense, from the perspective of some people who look today at the FDA, at states interfering from their perspective with personal beliefs with regard to vaccination, they are looking at this massive regulatory force, which is the FDA, which often let disaster happen and then it didn't intervene. And the only really bright story that we have to show for is the thalidomide that. Uh, actually, the, the FDA, and, and it's not the FDA, right? It was one person at the FDA uh, actually single-handedly prevented potential disaster from happening. So we come from a place uh, in, I think, time in history in which we've seen the government failing to protect its citizens. And then you have this regulatory agency that's largely funded by user fees. And you have a great commingling of different types of FDA-regulated industries and the regulators themselves. So it's a lot of problems. And I'm not suggesting that the FDA is not doing its job. I, in fact, I think it's functioning much better than most agencies these days. But these are big questions. And if you look at all this regulatory history put together, you can see why some people are very suspicious of anything the state might have to say about any type of product falling under the purview of the FDA. And of course, vaccines just insert themselves into that, you know, yeah. hot cauldron of very, very sensitive areas in which collectively in the US, we've often failed to, you know, to have the foresight to do things when they, we needed to. Absolutely. We talk about uh, vaccines and the idea of rights and free speech and mm -hmm. and that so let's let's kind of touch on that issue how, how do you feel about how those things kind of hover around or gravitate towards each other uh, well you have the right to free speech but you're um, also entitled so to speak to have either a state or a government that to some degree watch over you from a public health perspective. And you might think there's some paternalism to it, but there is a degree of paternalism embedded in the fact that we've chose to live, you know, as social human beings. So when you get past that, that dictates you have to be subject to a number of laws from paying taxes to not under normal circumstances being able to take unapproved pharmaceutical drugs. Once you get past that threshold that there is a degree of paternalism that you can't get rid of because of how we live in, in society. Um, right. I, I actually think the legal framework and regulatory framework with regard to vaccines is actually crystal clear. So were it not for the emotional side of the debate that we've been discussing, this should be pretty straightforward and it goes as follows. The um, federal government doesn't do a whole lot in this area. The federal government by default as jurisdiction over public health law. And this comes from the Commerce Clause. You don't really want diseases migrating from one place to the other and spreading and taking their toll. So there's sort of a large role that the federal government um, has. That's why you have agencies like the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But 
mostly it's up to the states in the field of vaccination to decide what to do. There's literally nothing um, in, in the First Amendment, which is the one that regulates uh, free speech, that runs counter to the idea that states should be able to mandate uh, vaccination. And when I was talking about this being settled law for over a hundred years, mm -hmm. the case that pretty much said, um, and this was with regard to the state of um, Massachusetts, but the case that said, you know, at the state level, states have police power. They use this police power to do a number of things. They've always done that from um, pretty much determining how things will um, be built or run in a particular city to telling um, the citizens of a given state that their kids have to get certain immunizations before going to school. That's the police power of the state. The case, uh, which is called Jacobson uh, versus Massachusetts, that's 1905. Oh, wow. Um, so the, the <laughs> is pretty clear. Now, yeah, we've um, been talking about it for quite a while. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and then when you marry the idea of free speech to the idea that there are the forms of speech and there are beliefs that um, we also protect, you get um, religious beliefs or convictions um, thrown into the debate. But again, it might not be 100 years old, but we have case law on this. So... Um, this is 40 years later, so 40 years after um, Jacobson, there's another case out of Massachusetts, uh, and it's called Prince. And in, in Prince, the court was looking squarely at whether this police power that enables sites to say, you know, before you send your kids to school, they need to get these shots. Yeah. And um, they can get other shots, but these for sure, they need those. Um, so the, the court said very clearly that this is not incompatible with the fact that we protect um, religious freedom in, in the U.S. What the, what the court said in Prince was that, that the right to practice your religion freely does not mean that you get to expose both the community and your child um, to diseases that might, you know, take, uh, take some toll on, on either the community or the child and even bring death. I mean, the, the, the court re really went through all the scenarios. Uh, you know, you might just get sick. Um, you might be a burden to the health system because you go to the hospital and that, that's the type of burden we want to, mm -hmm. um, to prevent. Or you might die, right? Or your child might um, die or you if you choose not to get immunized. So we ran all these scenarios in the 40s, right. last century, right? right. So right. as far as I'm concerned, it, it, this is a matter of policy and of, you know, social debate. This is not a matter of law. Right. And uh, speaking of law, New York just overturned the religious exemption on vaccines and has caused quite an uproar, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it's it's interesting because many of the people that were claiming religious exemption are non-religious people, are people that don't participate in any religion, but they were using it as a legal loophole. Uh, for their vaccine beliefs. The vaccine was the bigger religion, I believe, than the religion itself. Yep, and um, California um, has also done that and is now has now just enacted a follow-up law to actually prevent gaming of the system. Mm -hmm. In what way? What other ways can we get around it? You know, gaming in the system in the sense that you end up using the religious exemptions as a sort of a, you know, kitchen sink, right? Anything right. Um, that I, I feel about uh, about vaccines, um, it can be built as, uh, as a religious argument. But the truth is, although it's been used as such, it cannot because we value religion in very particular ways in, in the U.S. and we protect it. We could mm -hmm. have chosen 
not to. There are plenty of states that say, hey, we are not going to do anything that runs contrary to uh, freedom of religion, but we're not going to spend too much time thinking about it either. And that's not the U.S., right? So the U.S. has right. always protected religion in a particular uh, way, but it has to be religion. And when you start um, making certain claims, as people were doing um, in, in this field, that was not a religious argument. It was merely disguised um, as um, as such, so that's yeah. that's been a that's a way to game um, to game the system. Are there states in the U.S. that have exemptions for vaccines that are outside of religious exemption? Um, so there are different types of vaccine of. Um, exemptions that you theoretically um, can get. Um, so, uh, of course, the one that is the least controversial of it all is the medical exemption. Um, if, if your um, immunity is diminished in, in some form, um, yes, that's the most common one. But then there are two types of non-medical exemptions, and we've talked about the religious exemption. There's also the personal belief exemption. And those, all of these have coexisted in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm talking with you from Missouri where we have uh, religious exemptions, but uh, a lot of states have had personal belief uh, exemptions from uh, Oregon to Texas to Pennsylvania. Right. And I'm sure we can look at the statistics and, and see very clearly trends of immunizations and diseases and such uh, on states that have these exemptions. And that's kind of what New York said. The the measles outbreak hit us pretty hard in, in New York City, especially in the surrounding areas. So it was a, it was a necessary move. So um, let's talk about the misinformation that gets people to this place. Because it's one thing to say, I don't want to. I am afraid of needles. I'm allergic. It's another thing to say there's mercury, there's formaldehyde, there's oh, aborted fetus right. tissues, mm -hmm. there's all of this stuff. So let's talk about vaccine misinformation. So give us your 10,000 foot view of this whole problem. Okay. And um, I, I will let me just say one thing because a lot of the misinformation, um, it's getting um, you know more widely spread, but it's also fairly localized and it's also disseminated in particular. So just before I get to that, sure. um, still related to the to the previous points, last year a study came out um, on plus medicine, and um, the researchers tracked the they're known as hotspots um, for potential um, outbreaks. So they did this. Um, they did this with regard to measles because, of course, um, there's there was the the New York outbreak, which was beginning late uh, 2018, um, and so the the reports mapped hotspots for potential outbreaks, and these were linked to um, places in the U.S. that had the philosophical belief um, exemption that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these um, hotspots, metropolitan uh, areas, are um, areas that you would not associate with some uh, of the places where either misinformation uh, or serious hesitancy behavior has taken hold. So we're talking about cities like you know Seattle and Austin, Texas, um, and you know close to home for me, so Kansas City, uh, Missouri, a few places in, in in the Midwest, but also you know Portland, Oregon. So. Yeah. Um, when we talk about misinformation, it's also important to keep this in mind. It's at this point there are large pockets in the entire country. It's not, you know, it's not a rural phenomenon. So there are there are layers developing that we didn't see. 
Right. That's what we spoke about in the last uh, episode was the idea that the misinformation is being targeted towards more educated, more affluent mm -hmm. uh, women in particular that live in um, city centers and urban centers, right. the places where you would say that uh, these people would be the ones making the more scientifically sound decision because they come from a place of privilege. They've, they have access to the information, they have access to the services, and they have um, you know, access to the consensus, you know, mm -hmm. so. Right. Um, so, and, and I do want to answer the question you actually um, asked sure. me, so misinformation. Um, and it's happening in the U.S. Um, and it's happening elsewhere. Um, so I've written a little bit recently about how, you know, bots, software programs um, that we've heard about in connection with the 2016 election also can be used and indeed have been used to spread vaccine misinformation. That has happened in the U.S. Um, it probably also happened um, in Canada. That's what the latest data um, seem to show. Um, and it's not impossible that it has happened um, elsewhere, maybe not to such, uh, to such a degree as you know, compared to what happened in, in the U.S. We've always had misinformation with regard to vaccines. We've had misinformation from day one. One of the big things that helped spread vaccination practices in the U.S. was that early on presidents at the White House would vaccinate their children and, you know, make a lot of noise about it in, in a very mm -hmm. good way just to encourage that type of, um, of behavior. Now the world has changed, but even back then there was misinformation. There where people were, you know, uh, afraid of needles, afraid yeah. of the concept, right? Wait, you're putting virus inside me. How does that make sense? And then later on, there was also misinformation. And, and then there were obviously justified concerns, right? With some of the components that you mentioned that go into vaccine making, there were some very serious problems uh, caused by vaccines that were not properly made, particularly you know, over about a hundred years ago or over a hundred years ago. And we, we have not forgotten about those. So there's always been this mix of, I'm deeply afraid of what you just said, fetal tissue, for instance, uh, or formaldehyde, but also the idea that I don't fully understand how this happens. And now we, we are, we've reached a different level in misinformation, which is just, um, the idea that you might not even have a particular objection to these things being used in vaccines, which was a big thing um, back in the day, but you also um, have heard about certain uh, studies that, you know, have long been retracted, but somehow a certain not statistically insignificant number of people um, choose to um, hold um, as um, truth. So you have heard about things that actually have never been proven to occur with in connection with vaccines, such as autism, right? Autism, right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's a different type of misinformation. This is not the misinformation of uh, the period in which we had, you know, uh, vaccine farms in the Philadelphia area and people were scared of vaccines um, for a number of uh, reasons. And there was misinformation in the form of lack of knowledge. Now it's uh, different manifestations of selective uh, knowledge and you stick to this idea um, and that's your uh, vaccine worldview. And on right. top of it, now we have ways to amplify those views and make them much more prominent than they ever ought to be. Everything has a community now. I, I was explaining to somebody locally here that I am an 
old school arcade aficionado and I am belong to a very small community of people that build their own arcades. And I just, th in the middle of saying this, I said, wow, that's weird that I can get close to people that are into that. If you are into quilting uh, polka related <laughs> quilts, you can find a community and be very validated in your beliefs and, and your world worldviews. So uh, yeah, totally. The, the, I, I like what you were saying about the celebrities bringing the positive message to the surface because I'm sure a lot of people remember um, or have heard that Elvis was a big reason that people got polio vaccines. Mm -hmm, right. Modeling behaviors, right? I, mm -hmm. And now we actually see the opposite. Uh, I'm not going to compare Jenny McCarthy or Jessica Biel to mm -hmm. um, Elvis, but they, if anything, they have more media coverage than Elvis did, right? Ever because, did, yes, of course. Um, so even, uh, you know, without qualifying their status, but even a minor celebrity saying something, that's a following of possibly millions. So now it makes much more of a difference. Um, and. I, I do understand the modeling um, aspect of it. I, I understand that if there's a president in the White House saying, I see, look, look at this photo, look at this video, here I am getting the flu shot, that's a certain type of modeling that you'd think um, ought to be encouraged. Um, and incidentally, what we have uh, right now is a Twitter uh, from our current president when he was not <laughs> president linking vaccines to autism. So that's mm -hmm. not the type of modeling that we want yes. to encourage. But yes. the modeling that gets a lot of mileage is the Hollywood celebrity saying vaccines cause autism. And for the life of me, I don't understand how you should take medical advice from, you know, Jessica Bill. Yeah, either way, positive or negative, I can understand us saying, like, listen, why, why are we even listening to celebrities about anything medical? Understanding that the influence, though, goes both ways, and that's kind of the right. point, right? So right. the the idea, even if we had more celebrities coming out in favor of it, it's kind of like this whole China NBA thing, right? Where the the communities then tear apart their their celebrity from the inside because of the opposing viewpoint. So if 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 I was Justin Bieber, I guess people listen to him or whatever. But so if I was that dude and I came out and said, I'm going to get vaccinated, he could have a, a, a complete revolution on his hand with his followers and lose potential sponsorship and money. So now a lot of people won't take any position on this. And the silence is, is deafening. Right. And, and, and I have to say, it, it in some ways, the fact that you and I are just discussing this right now mm -hmm. shows how out of control things have gotten, right? No, because it's not the role of a celebrity to, right. I think, issue uh, medical opinions, which is what some of these people get very close to um to doing and 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 you know and some of them do it under the appearance of um, you know I'm not an anti-vaxxer I'm just hesitant about some um, some aspects right uh, of of this particular law that you're trying to pass or about I have concerns about immunization um, the thing is that um, the speech uh, or the message that they are conveying by the time it reaches these um, audiences that already are highly motivated to think that there's something 
you know, either wrong or dubious about current vaccination policies and laws, um, they this gets interpreted, even the more nuanced statements that occasionally you get from, from these celebrities, they get interpreted often in very different ways, right? Right. Yeah, well, Le- LeBron's kind of claiming that right now with his China comments, of course. But yes, the, <laughs> the, but yeah, the idea of trust by proxy, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to trust this organization, but I trust this person. And, and as a healthcare practitioner that's trusted in a local and now like a, a, a regional type community, um, I'm getting that too. Like people who, like I wanted to explain the science to them and like, you know what, I just trust everything that you're saying because, you know, like the shortcuts that we use um, and that's a dangerous place to be with all of this. So, um, so it can be yielded or um, uh, wielded as a weapon for sure, but we have to be careful of it. Let's talk about one more piece on uh, vaccine misinformation before we get into like social media. Um, Sources of vaccine misinformation. People think that I'm crazy and I should put a tinfoil hat on when I talk about the Russian or foreign government influence of vaccine misinformation. Am I crazy? Um, I mean, it. The, I think there are sources we know for sure. There are sources that are somewhat fuzzy and are beginning to um, emerge. And, and I think there's, uh, simply put, not enough done in this field to fully understand the magnitude of what we're facing. Mm-hmm. Um, so their social media have for sure amplified debates that can be traced back to particular sources, right? So the study that was retracted um, and, and, and things like that. But I think there are indirect sources um, of misinformation. So there are people invested in campaigns that are clearly anti-vaccine. There are um, people um, invested in campaigns that are meant to make you question certain beliefs you might hold about vaccines, but then convey information in ways that are not um, accurate. Because saying vaccines might have detrimental effects as if vaccines were exceptional is not accurate, right? They can have detrimental effects, bad scenarios occur, but that's not specific to vaccines. That happens with any other biologic that actually happens with drugs, with pharmaceutical small molecule drugs, right? So there are gradations in the misinformation in their sources. And then there are, um, we've recently found out, um, sources of misinformation that literally care little about the vaccine debate, but are thriving on this idea of America not being united um, yes. as a nation over a number of issues. And vaccines are a political tool at this point, so why not um, use that space? So I don't even know how to begin to answer your question, because I think we have at least potentially three sources of misinformation. That's a really great summation of all of that. So let's talk about social media. The worst thing that's happened to us, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I have to say, I have to say, um, so um, our listeners for sure have noticed my accent. I'm from Portugal. I came to the U.S. in 2005. I did not have a Facebook account, and it was really hard for me to send pictures um, to my family and friends because not everybody <laughs> back in the day could, you know, easily download pictures. So I have to say they've made my life much easier. Um, mm-hmm. So, and they, there are so many problems with social media these days from, you know, privacy to the thing that, you know, is more, more directly related to what we're talking about, the way they can amplify bad, um, harmful information. But I, I don't, I don't want to say that, uh, you know, they're a horrible period, uh, although they can be put 
to horrible uses. And mm. alas, we're seeing that in the field um, of vaccines, both um, through individualized uses of social media. We talked about, um, uh, about celebrities. Um, that's one big platform um, for them to uh, convey their messages, but also uh, anonymous um, sources, people who um, they're known as vaccine trolls on things like mm -hmm. Twitter or Reddit. So part of my not so fun job for a few months was to um, monitor anti-vaccine discourse on Twitter. And there's a lot of repeat players. Um, yeah. Lots, a lot of repeat players. So, so there's that. How do they have time for that? Like it's a full-time job to be such a jerk out in the public, you know? Well, you um, you were mentioning earlier how these people are invested in the in the debate, and I I have to say I, we've been uh, identifying um, you and I a number of ongoing problems. But there's uh, and this is not restricted to to vaccines. We have um, often abdicated the role we probably should be having um, mm -hmm. in in some of these debates with regard to health related um, topics and other um, other areas, right? And and we're in the midst of. Uh, proto-presidential run and political <laughs> campaign. And there are so many issues on, on which uh, we have not been good um, at uh, doing our role as, as citizens, both from an active perspective, but also uh, from a passive perspective, which I guess is not um, that passive, but being informed, right? We failed at right. that. Um, we, I, I've seen a lot of people saying, well, this goes back to the 90s. We became very complacent as a nation in, in the 90s. So that's a, a form of failing as citizens, right? Just because the economy looked good, it didn't necessarily mean it was good. Just because banks appear to be doing well um, didn't mean they were doing the right things. Just because you could do certain th things in, in financial markets didn't mean you should be allowed to. And the same goes with regard to um, health topics. So this is... a one manifestation of a much larger systemic um, problem with democracy in, yeah. in, in America. And we've abdicated certain uh, roles and uh, capacities we used to have, and we lost some of, of, the, of the street cred, so to speak, you know, that, that we had in the field. Yeah, I mean, just the idea that when misinformation is spread, doing nothing on social media um, is is worse than supporting it, I feel. It's, it's just like with any social issue, the idea that this misinformation is going around, somebody in your circle is spreading it. If you allow it to be shown on your feed without blocking it, other people can see it on your, you know, it's like it's, it has a virality to it. So, um, you know, even saying, no, that's not true, or just doing something to participate to kind of like tamp this stuff down. I, I always liken it to like a dinner party. That's what social media reminds me of. <laughs> if somebody's at a dinner party, just start spouting off crazy stuff. It's going to get a little awkward, right? But somebody's going to say something and you're more, much less likely to say these things, these bits of misinformation or these uh, theories uh, because you're going to get checked for it, uh, you know, face to face and deal with all that emotional stuff. But when we have this platform of social media, it's much more empowering to just shout from the rooftop these these ideas despite the evidence or despite the truth and um and then the spread of it is just uh, tremendous so does social media because it's a pl private platform do they have a role here um i know there's a big debate about censoring Mm -hmm. shown and said what do you feel about that from a legal standpoint and from a personal standpoint so they, they have a role for sure um and so and, and let me just preface this by saying that although i use social media um i 
I am convinced that I spend, you know, way less time than an average social media um, user does um, on, on these platforms. Uh, but I do see a role for, um, for social media in this area. And, and we've seen social media intervening, you know, in, in the face of uh, some of the recent outbreaks and their, you know, the prominence now in, in, in news coverage uh, of news related to, um, to, to misinformation. So we've seen Pinterest take the lead um, in, in that field and say, hey, we are not going to allow you to show these types of, um, of information. We've seen um, Facebook taking some intermediate um, steps. We've seen, uh, you know, search engines uh, downgrading and, and, and social platforms um, as well, downgrading uh, the ranking of messages containing uh, misinformation. So they have a role and they can have uh, a, a very, uh, you know, sizable amount of influence in the way that um, that misinformation gets propelled across the social media um, universe. Now, the, the question, the more interesting question is, as a matter of uh, policy, what should these private companies be doing, right? Is it, is it enough to take these intermediate steps and say, we'll, we'll still allow misinformation, but we'll make it harder to, uh, to find? Uh, is there such uh, a, you know, a compelling interest at stake that we should say, if it's misinformation because of the horrendous public health consequences that uh, might occur because, you know, you're um, a pathway for, uh, for this type of information to circulate, you should not be able to, um, to show this information at all. That, that's hard um, to require. That's very, very hard to require. So I think it's, um, I think if, if ever there was a place for self-regulation, uh, um, I think this would be a very good place um, to self-regulate much more stringently than some um, social media are doing. Right. Personally, I, I, um, I, I like it now when I, um, Allows have to spend time on Twitter, uh, and you know you Google things that are, or you you search for things that are very specific to um, anti-vaccination uh, campaigns, and immediately there's a, uh, a message from the CDC with actual information. I just think that the potential of this is limited because if you're if you bother to you know looking for the hashtag um, that's of interest to um, anti-vaccination proponents, you can pretty quickly quickly just, you know, glance over the CDC endorsed information and start reading what you want to read. So it's not enough. What they're doing is not enough. Right. In fact, it, um, seeing that counter information could could further cement their position or further distance themselves from the truth and say, oh, here it is. They, now they're trying to control what I see, you know? Yes, absolutely. It can, it can have the um, opposite um, in fact, I mean, there's a lot of scholarship done around the idea that legal scholarship, but also in the social sciences at large, saying usually people who have were already predisposed, you know, to uh, say, I don't want to have my children vaccinated or I have severe concerns about X, Z, and Y, the most efficient method to approach these people is actually not to mandate something, right? right. Um, there's, there's a lot of um, interesting suggestions out there. I have reservations about most of them, but the idea is that if there's enough amount of red type for you to get an exemption, you might just give up. And in fact, that's that's... Uh, proved to happen, right? right? So if I make it really, really hard and you have uh, to jump so many hurdles, um, that's going to make you, if you really don't care, even if you care to some extent, um, but you're not the most motivated player, you won't go and, you know, and seek out the exemption. Um, there are people saying there are 
tax. Um, you know, there are both fines or prizes that you can um, structure to compel certain behaviors. We talk a, a lot now um, in legal, but also in the extra legal literatures about nudging certain health um, behaviors. So normally, you know, giving somebody a prize or, you know, saying if you don't do this, there's a fine um, in store for you. That helps um, channel certain uh, behaviors. Um, and some people say this is less paternalistic than having the state say from now on only medical um, exemptions. I have some reservations about these um these approaches, but it seems w w one thing that seems evident is that if you tell people you have to do this, often mm -hmm. they don't react well. Right. Uh, well, I mean, that's everybody. That's humans in in every sense of the word. In fact, mm -hmm. you know, part of my gig is trying to figure out why I'm such a you know a, a person as I am. Right. And you know, I'm a parent. I'm trying to raise children. Mm -hmm. And if, the minute that you tell a child what to do, they don't like that. That's the human nature to resist that. It's a power struggle at every angle. And so the better way to raise children based on, you know, the evidence there is to offer choices, you know, mm -hmm. to say you, you can do this, which is the ideal behavior, or, or you have this option. And so, you know, re-empowering people versus authoritatively coming down, mm -hmm. um, you know, resistance is two forces. So their pushback and our push towards them. So. And, and I agree with that. And I agree with the many scholars who say, you know, there are reasons why it probably doesn't work out to have the federal government say, you know, no exemptions whatsoever. That raises problems yeah. uh, from a constitutional law perspective. But um, states, um, as, as you've seen, do have that uh, authority. And yet many scholars say, but maybe you shouldn't do it that way, right? And, and from a practical point of uh, a, a view. I'm. I agree that that's. You're not going to accomplish um, the final goal without more and without much more focus on on education and certain interventions. We've not uh, been focusing on so far. But m my one um, concern in the middle of all this is that there are some circumstances in which the state needs to act quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I mean here both federal and, and state level, depending on, on the issue, uh, for public health reasons. And I don't think we give enough deference to, you know, public health imperatives. And stepping outside the vaccine box for one moment, think about the vaping epidemic right now. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit at, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's strange for me um, that... Uh, it's um, th there's still so much resistance to the idea that we don't fully know, or we didn't fully know what these products um, did, especially the flavored ones that are so appealing to children. Yes. We didn't know exactly what the consequences would be. There's absolutely no way we did. They had been they had not been studied um, for for that long. Don't we collectively see an interest in having some sort of intervention early on? Because what's what's the flip side, right? What's the worst yeah. that can happen? We conclude they're not as bad as we think right now in 2019, and some children will not vibe um, in their youth. That's the worst case scenario if we are, from a regulatory perspective, a little bit more um, more cautious. Well, I and I, I know this does not translate perfectly, right, into the field of, of vaccines, but it's just this general idea. I want to vibe, so I shall. And, you know, the discourse, I think, has to be slightly different when you talk about adults. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there are some parallels with the, uh, you know, the earlier debate on smoking and now the debate on vaping and the ongoing debate on vaccines. 
I don't like paternalism, you know, I like it as much as the next person, which is to say, I react as most people do if told to, to do. Uh, don't something. tell me what to do, right? Mm -hmm. But, but I do listen to my doctors. This is not to say I might not seek out a second opinion if I think I need to, right? So there, there's some degree and, and, and I believe in, uh, in certain um, values of autonomy, but there's a reason you know, these people train for years and scientists train for years and spend their careers um, seeking, you know, this is science. It's as accurate as it can possibly be. It might not be the whole story, but we've come to terms with that and that's how science um, works. So I, I just think that saying we don't want states to intervene, even though they could and say non-medical exemptions no longer make sense. Well, stop having them uh, in place because we like autonomy and because people will um, will react negatively to being told not to do something. I understand the force behind that argument. I think there are particular pockets of either vaccine hesitant or anti-vaccine um, supporters um, that are more informed by some of the bad things that have happened in the past or that, you know, the risks, they, they look much more at the risks than, than the benefits. Um, so I, I understand that some people have different concerns and, you know, people like me who support, uh, obviously, um, vaccination in cases when we're recommended and no medical um, reason prevents somebody from getting vaccinated. I understand that we have to be cognizant of the concerns of uh, of these people, but I don't think that saying well they won't like the 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 remedy uh, they they won't like the way we implement uh, laws and and regulations that can't have the force it has today. But that's right. my opinion, right? Of course, and you know, I mean, we opt in to be a part of this. We have to take the good with the bad, and uh, this is a, a social contract that we have to be where we are. And you know mm -hmm. the the whole like don't like it move. I don't agree with that. Don't like it change it. So then start to change laws and 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 be active in your local and state governments. That's fine. My big thing is if you I, and again I hear empathy in your voice. Don't you don't trust these large established governments. You're you're skeptical. You might not understand it completely. I just don't want you to replace that with the the spoutings of a charlatan. You know, right, um, right. The, the idea that we have so many traveling preachers and not many theologians is the problem. You know, people are believing the, the, the person that sounds uh, right and, and confirms their, their bias. Um, and so here's the thing. Uh, the, the closing question and discussion will be, I'm an individual and I have somebody in my circle who is uh, anti-vax. How do I engage with that person? Do I engage? What's your advice around that? I mean, I, as you can imagine, I do talk to a lot of uh, anti-vax and uh, vaccine um, hesitant um, people. Um, and, and again, because we've now become so divided collectively, there, there are different types of conversation. Sometimes it is impossible um, to have the conversation. I have to be um, pretty, pretty honest about this. Um, yeah. The day I published the article on, on vaccine bots, um, I got more hate mail in a single day than in my entire life. So wow. uh, some, sometimes it's impossible to have the debate. And this is, you know, has some to do with, uh, with the world of vaccines, but a lot with deeper problems. And that's not, um, that's not, uh, happening just in the field of, of vaccine. So w one thing uh, that I think people need to be aware of is that in some cases that dialogue is not happening. Um, it's, it's, it's not happening because it, it 
can turn violent. Um, mm-hmm. So, so there are extreme cases out there, which is very, very unfortunate. In in every other um, situation, I think that, um, and and I think part of this comes from my training as a as a, a law professor, in which we always try to see the two sides of of the problem. But um, I like to think um, that it comes from the fact that I'm a human being and, you know, and when, when I talk um, to my students about complex problems, that they're trying to be lawyers, but they're people. And because people have different opinions, you should be able to, you know, politely, not in a non-belligerent way, you know, state your position and explain why you believe in um, sciences or at least in scientific consensus being a good way to regulate. So that's, that is my view. But I ask, I ask people, what, why is it? Uh, why is it that um, you don't think that scientific consensus is a good tool? So what would, would be a better um, tool? Why is this article that's been retracted more important than a hundred other ones? Why mm-hmm. is anecdotal evidence um, in this particular field more important than, you know, statistically validated um, data. And and what sometimes um, does happen is that some people have concerns that are um, valuable. So some people have heard that if you need to take a lot of vaccines at the same time, say because you're traveling to an exotic location, you're better off sometimes staggering the vaccines because immunity lasts. um, If you take them all at the same time, there is now some literature suggesting that uh, immunity will last less than if you stagger vaccines. um, And sometimes people, and you know, some of the people in the both anti-vax and um, vaccine hesitancy debate, they, um, they have scouted the literature and they point out that sometimes the guidelines do not reflect this idea um, that perhaps you should not be getting your vaccine, uh, your flu vaccine in August, right? But a mm-hmm. little bit later. But then again, collectively, how do we, you know, how does... Uh, how do we streamline things so that everybody gets their flu vaccine when it's perfect for them? It's just not happening. So you, you can hear some very valid concerns that I think make you think further about nuances in the way we think about being what in their view is paternalistic or, you know, right wrong um so i I think you try to listen and you you try um to express your point of view that that's what i do sometimes it's possible sometimes it's uh, possible but ineffective and sometimes it's very constructive and invariably i learn a lot yeah wonderful i think that it could not be said better than that. I believe that the onus really falls to us as the individual. There's a real possibility that the way that you're either researching or engaging with the facts or analyzing is wrong. And that's okay because not all of us were trained like you and I were um, through like such rigorous measures and had so much experience looking at all of this and understanding what our logical fallacies and how bias plays a role in everything. And we have to accept that. So, well, and, and I get things wrong too, right? Even, you know, even people who are highly educated in, in, in a field, I'm sure I get things wrong in terms of legal uh, analysis and policy sometimes. But what I'm pretty sure is that the way we structure things in this country and elsewhere is that if some things are, primarily regulated by experts, uh, by or by regulators who consult experts in the field, we tend to defer to those unless there's overwhelming evidence that that's the wrong thing to do. I just don't see that overwhelming evidence to counter any of the things we've been talking about. Right. 
I agree with you. Well, Anna, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think this has been very informative and this is uh, an amazing topic to talk about. And I hope it helps people see all the different sides of this and, and maybe even change a couple minds here. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you, Anna, for that fascinating look at the side of the conversation not many of us really participate in. Anna's a fabulous guest and clearly passionate, well-versed on many of the vaccine-related subjects, so I was glad to have her on. I think Anna does a really tremendous job of empathizing, which many of the people on the pro-vax side don't really do a lot. She lays out a great case for real reasons why someone might not trust the FDA or other establishments. The thing is, as a practitioner and talking to people over the years, I don't think most people are aware of those specific reasons that she gives. There's just a general distrust normally sent around corruption, uh, but there's plenty of good reasons to not trust the FDA. Uh, Despite their faults, though, she advises us to still follow consensus because we're not looking at a single group like a parent, as Anna reminds us, to tell us what to do. There's lots of groups, organizations, experts at the local, state, national level, visibility, in both private and public practice that are reading the research and coming to the same conclusion. As Anna said, the consensus on vaccines is somewhat stronger than that of climate change. Overwhelmingly, vaccination is safe. And the other thing that we talked about that I think is important is like, because we're adults, we know life isn't black and white and our information is always changing. So the example that I'll give, because we're adults, we know life isn't black and white and our information is always changing. For example, in 2014, new data caused expert bodies to recommend those over 65 to get two types of pneumonia vaccine. Prevnar, the new pneumonia vaccine, would be added to Pneumovax, the old pneumonia vaccine. And one of my patients came up with a great little thing. He said, oh, so do I need the old pneumonia or the new pneumonia? And I thought that was a great dad joke that I'll share with you guys. So anyway, we now have a shift in the recommendations a few short years later, where the new pneumonia vaccine isn't required anymore, and the old pneumonia is all that's needed unless someone opts for it. That doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the advice or we were misled. It's just the data at the time advised us to get that second vaccine. And then looking at the data over the past five years has brought us to the place where we say, oh, that actually didn't change anything. And we can go back to the old methodology. So consensus and advice will change and adopt to data as it's presented. So I think that's important for all of us to understand of all the different factors that come into play here, medicine is a practice and we're constantly evolving what we know and refining things down. It doesn't mean that we should sit on the sidelines and not participate. So thanks again to Anna for coming on and helping us understand the legal implications of the conversation. I think you should reach out to Anna on Twitter. A underscore Rushman, uh, R-U-T-S-C-H-M-A-N is her little call sign or tag, whatever the heck the kids do on Twitter. And you can email her at Anna.Rushman at slu.edu and it's A-N-A dot R-U-S-T-C-H-M-A-N at S-L-U dot E-D-U. Again, check out our show notes at woodstockvitamins.com slash podcast to get a link to her research and like her profile. Um, And thanks for listening. And I hope this was enlightening for all of you around vaccination. Until next time, keep listening, keep learning, and be well.